Let us now read together what we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 4. There we have God's word summarized as follows. But does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? No, for God so created man that he was able to do it. But man, at the instigation of the devil, in deliberate disobedience, robbed himself and all his descendants of these gifts. Will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? Certainly not. He is terribly displeased with our original sin as well as our actual sins. Therefore, he will punish them by a just judgment both now and eternally. As he has declared, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Galatians 3 verse 10. But is God not also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. His justice requires that sin committed against the most high majesty of God also be punished with the most severe, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. After the sermon, we will respond by singing from Psalm 103, the stanzas 3, 4, and 9. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, we all have a keen sense of justice, don't we? At least when it applies to us personally. That's our sinful nature. And that sinful nature comes to the fore, especially here in Lord's Day 4. For what do we do here? Here we actually question the justice of God. We ask, but does not God do man an injustice by requiring in his law what man cannot do? It's a question asked by sinful man. Why do we ask it? Why do we question God's justice? For we know that God is the God of truth. He does not twist his words. He does not go back on his promises. Over and over he states that in his word to us. And yet here we have the audacity to bring into doubt God's fairness. Do the composers of the Heidelberg Catechism not go too far in posing the question in the way that they did? Should they not have phrased it differently? Is it not irreverent to question God in this way? Many commentators on the Heidelberg Catechism also point that out. They say it's actually an impertinent question. Yet we find that in the Bible that godly men do the same thing. Job, for example, during the time of his suffering, he questioned God's justice time and again. Many psalmists did the same. In the end, though, all these godly men find their answer with God. For example, Asaph, after questioning God's justice, says in verse 17 of Psalm 23, that he understands only once he enters into the presence of God. He sought his answer with God and he found it. That's also what we have to do. We have to go to God's word to understand what true justice is. I will preach to you about God's perfect justice and mercy. 
we will see three things. We will see, first of all, that God's punishment is just. Secondly, that God's punishment is severe. And finally, that God's punishment is paired with mercy. Just imagine yourself standing there amongst God's people in the place described in Deuteronomy 27. On the one side, Mount Gerizim, stand the tribes of Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And on the other side, Mount Ebal, stand the tribes of Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. And there is the valley in between. The people standing there have to repeat those curses recited by the Levites. Can you imagine how awe-inspiring that would have been? Hundreds of thousands of people speaking in unison as they utter together God's words of warning. Anyone present at that time would certainly be impressed. And they would never forget something like this for for the rest of their life. Especially the curses. For to receive God's blessings, that's not so difficult, is it? But curses, that's a different story. Twelve times they had to hear the great voice of the multitude. Cursed is the man who does this. Cursed is the man who does that. And then finally, cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of God's law by carrying them out. Cursed. Do you know what that means? That means that when you do those things, you're on your own. There is no one to help you or to commiserate with you. Nobody is going to care about you, who you are, what you do, or what you're up to. You are like thin air. You are nothing. You might as well not exist. To be cursed means to be destroyed. As those curses echoed across the valley... Those words will make their hair stand up on the back of their heads and send shivers down your spine. This is especially because the people themselves have to respond with the word, Amen. That is to say, it is true and sure. By responding in this way, they had to acknowledge that by not doing what God requires, you bring those curses upon yourself. And so if you would have attended at that time, you would have done the same thing. You too would have called curses upon yourself. For that reason, any punishment you would receive would be justified, wouldn't it? If you did not do what you said you would do. If you said, for example, that you would be cursed if you dishonor your father and your mother, and if you break this law, then the sentence that would be given to you would be justified. You can only blame yourself. But you may say, well, I wasn't standing there at that time. I did not promise what those Israelites promised. And that's a good thing. I would not want those curses hanging over my head. Is that true? Are you and I in a different position than those Israelites? Well, think again. We just read from Lord's Day 4. That is our confession. In other words, that is our amen to God's word. And we agreed, as it says in answer 10, that everyone is cursed who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The Catechism quotes Galatians 3 verse 10. 
Do those words sound familiar? Of course. Because Galatians, in turn, quotes from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, the very words spoken there by the people of Israel. Cursed is the man who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. And then all the people responded by saying, Amen. You and I have done and do the same thing. For to confess, as my pre-confession students know very well, means to say the same thing as God's word. It means to say yes and amen to God's promises and obligations. And therefore, we are not any different from those Israelites standing there on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. What is justice? Justice has to do with fairness. Justice has to do with doing the right thing. What God requires from us is therefore totally fair. Because we are his covenant's children, we promise to keep our end of the bargain. We promise to obey God's law. And if we don't, we are cursed. However, as this Lord's Day also says, we are incapable. The previous Lord's Days reminded us that we are prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. We are miserable sinners. God requires, however, that we do the right thing. He tells us that we must love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind, and that we must love our neighbor as ourselves. And if we do not do that, then we stand utterly condemned before him. We are cursed. There is no escape from that judgment. In our ears, that sounds unjust. It would be like asking a million dollars from a penniless beggar and then to have him thrown into jail because he couldn't do so. It would be like asking a blind man to read a book to us and then scold him because he is incompetent. It would be like asking a baby not to cry and to punish a child if it does. It seems that God is asking us to do the impossible. However, it does not do us any good to try to understand this from the perspective of our own human sense of justice and our own sense of fair play. For you and I are asking this question from a sinful position. We have to look at how it started. And so carefully look at what the catechism is telling us. We are told that God holds us responsible together with Adam. And he holds us accountable for our deliberate disobedience. It wasn't just a faux faux pas. It wasn't just a misstep. It wasn't just a mistake. No, it was deliberate. That's what we confess, because that's what it says in the Bible. As we try to sort this out, we think about this personally. We think about ourselves. And that's why we also have a hard time putting Adam into the picture. For the catechism takes us back to the, to the time of the fall into sin. It speaks there about the instigation of the devil in connection with what happened in paradise. However, even though we do have a personal relationship with God, a personal covenant relationship with him, 
It is only because of the corporate relationship we have with him as God's people today and throughout the ages that we are connected to him. We are not loosely connected individuals. And that is why when the Israelites called those curses upon themselves, they did not do that as separate individuals in their homes, not as unrelated, disunited entities, but they did this collectively as God's people. Thousands upon thousands were standing there on those slopes as they called those curses upon themselves. They did it en masse. You see, God sees the human race not as a pile of wood chips, but as a giant tree. We're not separate little pebbles thrown together with one stone. We are twigs and branches on a tree, all organically united. We form a corporate unity. We belong together. That's why we also worship together as God's people. It is important for us to grasp this and to confess this. Let me therefore try to illustrate that from the way things work today in the corporate world. Think about the corporate debt of Canada. That debt is an astronomical amount of money that our nation owes to bankers and other creditors all over the world. These are your and my debts. However, when those debts were incurred, many of us were not yet born, and none of us were asked. In the same way God treats us, he also treats us as a corporate unity. We all owe God a great debt. God is a righteous God. He is a just God. We are the ones who are unrighteous. We are the ones collectively who have incurred the debt. And now we're trying to weasel ourselves out of that debt. We have forsaken God and we have broken the covenant relationship that we had with him from the very beginning. But now what does God do? Does he now break his relationship with us? Does he now do away with us because of our debt and our guilt? No. On the contrary. And yet, he maintains his law. His curse still remains in effect. How is that possible? Can you imagine if God were anything like you and me? Can you imagine if his concept of justice was just as loose as ours and just as self-centered as ours? That would mean that he would also shift his position as soon as matters were no longer favorable for him or if it would seem impossible to him. That would mean that he would then be just as capricious just as whimsical, whimsical as us. For that's how we are. As soon as we are in a pinch, we try to weasel ourselves out of our commitments. That's our nature. God, however, never ever changes his position. He is always faithful. He is faithful in every respect and has always remained true to himself and to the relationship that he has had with us. 
When God created us, he made a covenant with us. And he made us as his own. We are his people. He made us his image bearers. And even though we sinned, he still did not give up on us. And he continues to pursue everyone with his original covenant claim, namely to love him above all else and to love his laws for his sake and ours. People change their position all the time. Look at the way, for example, they treat their children, their own flesh and blood. When a child does not turn out the way the parents would like, they treat him or her with contempt. And if the behavior is really bad, then they may even disown him. The same thing is true in the covenant of marriage. Promises are made to each other, and yet those promises are broken with impunity. Not just those whose marriages end up in divorce break those promises. No, there is not a marriage that does not have broken promises. We are incapable of being totally faithful. And so God is righteous in his judgment when he declares us guilty. And when he tells us that the curses remain in effect. And yet... And this brings us to our second point. The Heidelberg Catechism is still not finished with trying to find a way out of our predicament. We're still trying to weasel out of it. Incredulously, the question is now asked, will God allow such disobedience and apostasy to go unpunished? We are still trying to escape God's punishment. Man is still trying to find some loophole whereby he can escape the deserved punishment from God. We want to pretend that God's curse now is no longer in effect. Again, that's done from our perspective. For what do you think would happen if there were laws on the books in Canada that no one could keep? If you had laws like that, that nobody could keep, then such laws would soon be rescinded, wouldn't they? For it would be impossible to put everybody in Canada in jail. And so soon, such illegal behavior would be decriminalized. It would be removed from the law books. God, however, does not do that. He always maintains his law. Listen to what we are told in Matthew 5, verse 18. There the Lord Jesus says in the Sermon of the Mount, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, God would not be God if he went back on his word. In paradise, he made the proclamation that if man sinned, he would surely die. He would receive the just sentence required by the law. He stands under the curse. And in Exodus 34, verse 7, he says, He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. 
God maintains his law. He does not retract his words. His punishment against those who sin is sure. That congregation is not a very popular Christian doctrine. It's no wonder that many people in this world do not want to do anything with Christianity. It is no wonder that so many Christians try to weasel out of it by only speaking and singing about God's love, as is done in so many churches. For this world does not want to hear about the judgment of God. Most people want nothing to do with a God who punishes. The people of the world want a God of love. They want a God who only forgives. It's okay if you believe in the God of love, but not if you believe in the God of damnation. And indeed, the wrath and punishment of God is a very sensitive issue. It touches the depth of our souls. And so, when speaking about this particular doctrine, we must be very careful how we speak about it. It is especially against the concept of the wrath of God that man will rebel. And therefore, when speaking to unbelievers, we must show God also in the proper light. We must speak about him in a way that he also reveals himself in his word. God doesn't want to scare you into heaven. He doesn't, first of all, portray himself as a God who is eager to destroy everything that goes against his will. No, he portrays himself as a God of justice. And he wants each and every one of us to understand the depth of his own sin and misery so that they can come to him and so that he can embrace them with his great love and mercy. We would not be able to speak about the wrath of God if he first could not speak about our only comfort and life in life and in death. For let's not forget, that's where we started off in Lord's Day 1. Before we dealt with our sin and misery. God's comfort comes before the knowledge about our sin and misery. God himself shows his kindness in many ways. He doesn't punish immediately. And that is the promise that he also made after the flood when he made his covenant with Noah. And so today we are living not only under the threat of God's judgment, but also under the rainbow of God's long-suffering. It says in Romans 2 verse 4 that no one should, that God, that, that God shows, it says in Romans 2 verse 4 that no one should show contempt for God's kindness. For God's kindness is supposed to lead us to repentance. And God also warns us through his parables in so many other ways that we should not fall asleep while his kindness is being shown to us. God allows his people to drink and to eat and to marry and to have a good time. But in the meantime, we should not forget about God's judgment that God's wrath is coming. He will unleash his wrath on all those who do not belong to God. And that is what will happen when the Son of Man comes again on the clouds on the last day. However, the catechism teaches us that it is not just something for the future. No, judgment is also something that happens every day. For the catechism speaks about God's judgment both now 
and eternally. Think about it. If you are a habitual drunk, you are likely to die at an early age and suffer all kinds of misery in the process. And if you smoke, the chances of getting lung cancer are greatly increased. If you are promiscuous, the chance of receiving the horrible disease of AIDS is also very great. And so I can go on. That's God's judgment. God judges all the time. But as I said, let us tread carefully as we speak about the judgment of God. For we are all under judgment. We're all sinful people. And therefore, we're all going to die a physical death. One commentator put it this way, death is the paycheck for a life wrongly spent. Sin and death separate us from one another. The worst thing is that it separates us from God. But do you know what the ultimate punishment is? The ultimate punishment is eternal death. Eternal death is the total absence of love and a perpetual, perpetual and continual life of hell. Eternal punishment is a dark truth. However, it is absolutely true. God's punishment should never be discussed with relish. In a lot of ways, it is hard for us to see how such punishment contributes to the glory of God. But we confess with the scriptures that God is just in all his ways. However, and that brings us to our last point, God's punishment is also paired with mercy. The last question dealing with our sin and misery asks, but is God not also merciful? That is the last of the three excuses we try to use in order to escape our deserved punishment. Polytheists, people who believe in many gods, do that. They call on the one god for protection against the other god. But our God, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, is one. In him there are no such contradictions. And so the answer is given, God is indeed merciful, but he is also just. We may not play off the one against the other, for there is no contradiction in God. There are no different sides to him. Up to this point, we have dealt only with our sins and misery. God has shown us that each and every one of his creation are held accountable for his sins, for the wicked deeds committed against the everlasting and almighty God. In all this, the catechism has followed the order as found in the letter of Paul to the Romans. That is how the inspired Paul arranged the material up until chapter 3, verse 19 of Romans. And then to mark the end of this treatment dealing with our guiltiness before God, he summarizes the teaching of our sins and misery with the following words. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in in his side, By observing the law, rather through the law, we become conscious of sin. Through the law, we become conscious of sin. And then comes the next section. He says in verse 21, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. 
to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. We are declared righteous. We are declared justified. We are just through Christ. The curse was never removed. But that curse was visited upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are now corporately united to him. In other words, together as God's people through faith. God lumps us all together as his covenant people. That is why we have to also confess these things together as God's people. How wonderful. We certainly have something to look forward again in the following weeks and months, don't we? We can hear again about the righteousness through faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. No less than 26 Lord's Days are devoted to it. And the rest of the Heidelberg Catechism also deals with it by reminding us of how we are to be thankful for what God has done through Christ. But then you may still want to ask, why did we have to confess Lord's Days 2, 3, and 4? Why did we have to be reminded in such an in-depth way of our sin and misery and about God's curses? Well, it's not because God wants you to be in the depths of despair. No, God wants each and every one of us to realize how badly we need Christ. He wants us to know that all those that do not lead to Christ lead nowhere. And so on the basis of the scriptures, all the doors have been nailed shut. We may not have any excuse for our behavior. We may not have false confidence in our own ability to climb out of the deep pit that we have dug for ourselves. He does not want us to rely on our good works or on our warm feelings. We cannot go through those doors. Those doors lead nowhere. God has shut them and no man shall open them. Brothers and sisters, we have to do with a righteous God, a just God. He always punishes. He does that now. He does that eternally in body and soul. But now our sins are either punished in the Lord Jesus Christ, or we have to bear our own punishment. And so to whom will you turn? Turn to Christ. God shows his justice, his righteousness, only through him. Our God is a just God. He is just to those who call upon him and who put their faith in him alone and no one else. Amen.